0: Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, here to bring you both the books of Romans and Deuteronomy, chapter by chapter, as we near the final completion of both those books. Today, we're in Romans chapter 13. And like most chapters in this ending section of Romans, uh, we're going to be talking a lot about a lot of the advice that Paul is giving to the Roman church. We're going to talk about the historical context of why Paul starts to talk about submitting to authorities. We're going to talk about the backstory to the Roman church a little bit again. And, um, show how that matters a lot to the current struggles that they're going through a lot more also to unpack with this episode for application. so we're going to spend a lot of time on that as we dive in come along for the ride As we dive into this chapter, I feel like it's good to um, spend a little bit of time recapping. Uh, I know that this section is the easiest to kind of forget uh, all of the things that we've been talking about chapter by chapter, but I also feel like um, at this point... uh, I don't necessarily want to be doing like super long recaps like I was doing before. Um, the reason for doing the really long, longer form recaps was really just to make sure that we understood a lot of the sections before it um, in as clear a way as possible since they were so um, related to one another in such a huge way. And it's not to say that these chapters are not related to what's come before, but it's definitely a bit of a shift. And it's definitely a bit of a shift that I think gives us a little bit of breathing room um, to just kind of briefly. Make Mention a lot of where Paul has been in the arguments before getting to this point. Um, remember that um, there are really only four sections in the entire book of Romans. Um, the first four chapters focus specifically on um, really laying the historical ground for Paul's main argument about. Um, Uh, Christianity and how Christianity is a uniting force for both a Gentile story and a Jewish story, and that those two stories both end in one same place, which is a place in which they need a savior, some uh, unifying figure that can come on the field and um, save them both from the law that they've um, disobeyed and save them from uh, their actions outside of the law. Um, This allows um, Paul then to launch into an argument about Uh, Jesus and Christianity and how that is something in which um, can be an answer to both those stories. However, he doesn't stop there. He then goes on to talk about Abraham being a unifying figure um, for um, Christianity and for Judaism and that Abraham and uh, the way that Abraham had faith in God in the Old Testament um, is directly um, comparative to how um, Christians now have faith in Jesus. And Abraham acts almost as a pre- Jesus figure. He then takes a step back and looks at Adam and the role that Adam played in issuing sin into the world in the first place, Um, how Adam um, was one of those uh, first humans that um, caused all of the humans from this point, both a Jew and a Gentile, to be in, in the situation they are in. As a result of this, this launches us into the second section of the book in which Paul is really fascinated by um, the struggle that um, both a Jew and a Gentile go through as they're um, trying to believe in Jesus, but also are struggling with sin. And so he spends a lot of time talking about sin in this next section and how sin um, becomes such a powerful force in both a Jew and a Gentile story to the point that um, by chapter six um, he. Uh, asks Asks both a Jew and a Gentile to, um, instead of allowing sin to continue existing in themselves, like what he sees happening in the church at the moment, um, he asks them to die to themselves um, and to see their life as the same kind of life that Jesus lived while on earth, in which they are to live out that same um, death that Christ died on the cross through their own dying to their own sinly desires. Um, He then goes and takes another step back in chapter 7 to focus specifically on how, for a Jewish story, um, they never could overcome sin through the opposite way um, to dying to self, which would be um, to attempt to use the law and to attempt to follow the law. For him, attempting to follow the law just ends in more sin. Um, Sin just co-ops the law for its own purposes. And so, really, at this point, there's only one answer, which is to die to self. He then explains a little bit of what that means for both a Christian and a Jew in chapter 8 by um, specifically showing where is... um, Everybody that's within the family of God now, both a Jew and a Gentile, where are they destined to go to? They are to become co-heirs with Christ Jesus. They're to become kings and queens with Christ Jesus. Um, and he shows how the Holy Spirit plays a huge role in helping um Uh, Christians die to self in that way that they can't do on their own. And uh, chapter 8 really becomes sort of his thesis for how all of that works um, in a way that's not like a Roman 7 Jew trying to follow the law, but instead in a way in which we're relying heavily on the Holy Spirit and Jesus transforming our life. This, of course, raises a bunch of questions, though, for his Jewish audience in the Church of Rome. Specifically, they have a lot of questions of, well, if all this is being done through Jesus' now, and it's um, primarily a Gentile faith at the moment, then what about all the promises made in the Old Testament to Jewish people, and why why do you seem to be um, ignoring all of those promises that were made? So Paul then spends the next three chapters really unpacking what it means to be a Jew, both in the past, how Jews actually had a horrible history with God, and how almost every time God makes a promise to them, um, they um, respond by being super Uh, critical and negative, and also um, sinning against God. And so Paul really sees the situation that the Jews are in not as one in which God has made all these promises that um, he needs to fulfill, um, but he sees the situation in one in which um, the Jews necessarily have really... um, Uh, reneged on that um, covenant, and as a result, it's up to God whether or not he wants to continue to do that covenant or not, and they need to remember that God um, can decide whether or not he wants to have mercy on the Jewish people and fulfill their parts in the covenant, or um, uh, decide that he just wants to work with a completely different group of people now, just like he decided to work with them initially. This doesn't mean necessarily that Paul um, does not believe that... um, uh, God is going to work with the Jewish people. He then picks up in chapter 10 and really begins to explore how in, um, the Jewish and Christian, um, scene at the moment, um, there is a huge amount of disbelief still with the Jewish people. And so carrying over from their past, um, tendencies to be super stubborn, um, they're still being stubborn even in today's time, and they're still not believing in Jesus. And so Paul does have a sense of, um, Um, sadness for the fact that they are not believing. But he also holds out a little bit of hope, which he gets to in chapter 11, where he talks about how he doesn't believe that God has fully abandoned Judaism. He believes that God will eventually work with the Jewish people and that for the time being, at least, um, the Gentiles are being allowed in precisely because the Jewish people have been so stubborn. And he sees that over the course of um, this time at least, the Gentiles will be more mainstream in the Christian thought. And then over time, as all of the Gentiles come into the faith, um, eventually the Jewish people will come back to the faith as well. And then at the very end, um, Jesus will come back after all of that concludes. Paul then um, switches tactics then and decides to really lay out um, his Uh, perspectives in light of all that he's talked about so far um, with specifically how he thinks the uh, Christians in Rome should live in light of all of this truth that he's laying out before them. Um, In chapter 12, then, he starts with a lot of how Uh, both Jewish and Christian people, then, are to consider themselves as unified and not as separate from one another. Remember, all of this has been to point towards the fact that the Jewish and Gentile relationship in the Roman Church has been really frayed recently, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that... um, Uh, one of the emperors of Rome, exiled all the Jewish people from Rome for a good portion of time. And then when they came back, they came back to the churches that were now being run by Gentile uh, people. And uh, they weren't allowed the same freedoms and power that they were allowed initially. And uh, they had a lot of conflicts with the Gentile population in Rome in the church there because they were doing things in a very different way than the Jewish people might want to do them. So um, all of this is then kind of setting up This idea for Paul in chapter 12 of being someone that's very kind and someone that's very um, uh, forgiving of other people in relationship with how people are doing things. So he spends chapter 12 really giving out a list of how we are to be sacrificial to one another, how we are to love one another, how we are not to have um, these um, opinions that we believe are to be mandated over others. And chapter 12 really has a huge focus on how. Uh, Loving one another really starts with transforming our minds and sacrificing our bodies and being someone that is um, willing to be submissive to one another in a huge way so that we don't have these conflicts that occur within the church. All right, so there's the there's the summary as we get into chapter 13. And you'll see throughout these chapters, Paul does have a huge emphasis on the idea of submission. Submission is a very difficult topic to talk about in today's time, and we'll talk about that a lot more as we get into um, specific um, verses in this chapter. I think submission is one of those words that um, has been abused a lot by the church, too, and so we'll talk about some of those things, how the church has unfortunately utilized that to um, some pretty horrible horrific kind of events and scenes and I think I think there's some room to talk about that. I, I will try and uh, as always be a little neutral on those things but I do think that there's a lot to be learned about submission in this chapter that I think will help a lot of those other passages, maybe in Ephesians and elsewhere, um, hopefully make a little bit more sense and hopefully we can start to kind of peel back the layers of how submission works in Christianity and also even address a little bit of uh, Marxist thought and what Marx uh, thought about um, Christianity and how he hated Christianity in a huge way because of verses like we're going to get into um, today. So there's a lot here to unpack and I think it's worth really diving into. To in a very intense way. Um, Again, like I said, my point here is never to be super political, but I do think it's important to at least talk about Karl Marx and talk about how um, negative he was towards Christianity and how that's kind of influenced a lot of our conversations today. Um, I don't think that that's necessarily too political. He was more a philosopher than a political theorist, Um, and I think it uh, can add a huge element to this episode in particular, where we're talking about submitting to authorities and things of that nature. So uh, strap in, we've got a lot uh, ahead of us, so let's go ahead and dive into the chapter. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law, the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in one law. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this understanding the present time the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because of our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed the night is nearly over the day is almost here so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light let us behave decently as in the daytime not in carousing and drunkenness not in sexual immorality and debauchery not in dissension and jealousy Rather, close yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. All right, so I made a lot of promises in this episode, so let's go ahead and dive into them. So we start out immediately with um, a section that has often been used in a lot of different places to advocate for a very political point. Um, And in many cases, this has been used specifically against different people of different races in our history's past. Um, this section, unfortunately, has been abused a lot. Um, it's a section in which um, it's been used to justify the slavery in America. Um, it's a section that's been used by the Catholic Church to um, justify their actions against the Protestant faith and to uh, Martin Luther. Um, it tends to be a passage, I guess I'll say, that um, anytime. anytime there is some authority or governing authority that's in power. Um, it tends to be the person in power that tries to use it to tell the person that's underneath that person in power that they shouldn't do anything or shouldn't respond in any kind of way or shouldn't rebel in any Kind of way. I remember the first time I really wrestled with this passage when I thought about America's own founding, uh, even and its own um, understanding of how it came to be and exist. Um, And uh, like the idea of like uh, America breaking off from uh, King George and all of the things of that nature. And I really had to think about what would I have believed. If I had lived back in 1776, would I have been someone that advocated for independence? Or would I have been someone that uh, wanted to continue a relationship with the um, British um, in uh, over the pond, basically? And I've thought a lot about that. And, you know, if I had been really... Uh, reading this verse a lot I think I would not have been someone that would have been fighting for independence but I think I would have been what are they called Tories? I think they're called Tories um, that that belief in um, having um, a, uh, a a king of some kind that has authority and we shouldn't be rebelling against it. I think this these verses I, I wonder even um, I don't I'm not a big history major but uh, I wonder how much this verse came up during that time period as well. All that to say that this this whole passage here that we're going to talk about today has been used in a myriad of different ways. Um, this is an interesting thing to discuss, too, because a lot of the time we we discuss doctrines and how deadly or how, um, uh, I guess, divisive theological doctrines can be. But there's also times, too, where very practical Things that Paul says that aren't doctrinal things at all also become very divisive. Um, specifically, passages like this, um, passages about um, slaves submitting to their masters, is another example of that. Um, passages about wives submitting to their husbands. Um, a lot of the practical advice in Paul oftentimes can create just as much division as the theological stuff. And I sometimes, <laughs> I sometimes wonder if uh, people are asking for something that they don't really know what they're asking for when they wish that Paul was less theological and more practical, um, because his practical stuff oftentimes gives as much, um, tension and, um, discussion and frustration sometimes as his, um, Uh, more dense theological stuff. Um, And again, remember the point is, I don't think Paul had those categories in his head. I don't think that he saw Romans 1 through 11 as a um, theology of sorts, and then Romans 12 through 16 is now practical life lessons for how to live. I think in a huge way, they were one and the same for him, and that it's only through looking at chapters one through 11, that we can get to a conversation about 12 through 16. And one of the reasons I think that a lot of these passages, um, become problematic for us is that we just divorce them from Romans one through 11. And we say, ah, theology is not important. Let's just focus on the practical. And so because of that, um, we get a very, very un, uh, I guess I would say, uh, uh, irresponsible reading of these texts because we're not allowing sort of all of the things that came before it to really influence how we read texts like this. So let's start with the historical context of this. This matters a lot to this church community in particular that he's talking about this because in their context, they had a Roman authority exile all the Jews from Rome. And that was a huge point of contention for the Jewish people. Um, That's something that we don't really experience in our time period today. We don't have leaders in America, at least, um, that exile just a whole race of people or a whole ethnicity of people away from America and then up a boundary. Um, the closest we might get to that is having like some like immigration policies and things of that nature. But like we, we aren't just mass exiting uh, a bunch of people um, of a specific background and ethnicity outside of our country. So we don't really, uh, I guess, really have a good sense of what that might look like and feel like if a authority were to do that. Um, I will say that like That would be something that would like cause so much tension in America, like if that happened. And uh, I think you can only imagine what that would have caused in Rome as well. However, remember in Rome that um, there was a lot more authority vested in the governing authorities than in America today. I know we like to talk about how. Um, In America, like the president and the Senate and all of them have so much more power than they should. That's something that I think America will always say to the day we die. That's what Jefferson said to the day he died. Um, But in reality, it has no comparison with how the emperor and the um, way that Rome ruled and operated, how much power they really held. Um, The Christians in particular were of the least power um, available to them. Um, one of the main interesting things is that, uh, Paul is in this unique situation where he does have a little bit more power than the rest of his Christian brethren because he's a Roman citizen. He was born in a Roman city and as a result, because he's a Roman citizen, um, the Romans treat him differently than anyone else because he is a Roman citizen. Um, and that gives him a little bit more power to be able to be influencing in Roman Um, issues. But for the rest of the Christian populace, that's probably not going to be the case unless they are Um, a Gentile, right? Um, And if they're a Gentile that's been born in Rome, they'll have some of that citizenship and they'll have a little bit more of that. But for any of the Jewish people, that might not be the case, right? And there'll be some Diasporan Jews here and there that might have some um, power. But uh, it is very much in these early days, um, Christianity was very much a religion. And we know this from um, a text um, called uh, from Pliny the Younger, um, who talked about um, Christianity pretty early on. And we know that Christianity was predominantly a religion for women, um, for slaves, um, for people of the lowest status. And so um, it hadn't really reached its way up even in Gentile circles to people of really high-ranking status and power. You have to kind of wait till like the 200s um, AD before, or I guess I should say CE now. Um, But you have to kind of wait to that period before really it starts to um, make its way into some more high ranking Roman officials and senators and things of that nature. But for, for the, really the first 200 years, I guess I would say Christianity really stayed on the ground level with the most, um, uh, most weak as far as just like power structures go. And as a result of that, um, it meant that like, they didn't really have a lot of choice when it came to how the authorities. Govern them and how they ruled them, right? There wasn't a huge sense of um, free will that they could do when it came to um, uh, just how to handle certain situations with Rome. And as a result, um, there's a sense in which, like, uh, it's, it's really difficult for Jewish people, especially to resist certain acts that Rome might put on them, like exiling them from the entire city of Rome for a certain amount of time. And even when they come back, there's still this tension about them coming back and being allowed to come back. Um, and a lot of it is a tension of like, you know, rightful, um, feelings of betrayal, even with the, uh, ruling government of Rome for getting rid of all of the Jewish people. Right. And so as a result, like there, that's all, that's all here in this church. Um, there's this underlying, um, Tension, I guess I'll say with the government authorities on how they've treated the Jewish people. Um, and um, maybe even there's this sense of uh, uh, the Gentiles seeing themselves now because they weren't exiled as um, more influential in the Roman government. And um, they have a sense of superiority even um, because they've been able to make some inroads there in the five years that the Jewish people were out and um, Again, it would be harder for a Roman to accept tenets of Judaism, um, just because Judaism uh, has so many specific laws about food laws and all these kinds of things. And I'm sure there were many Gentiles that were trying to convince Jews that that even, as Paul says, like it it would be too much of a burden on these higher Roman officials to ask them to live and eat kosher and things of that nature. So we got to think about this whole situation. In the church at Rome, not just as a relationship of like, what is the ethical, right, moral thing to do here? And we also have to think about it in, in its kind of political dynamic, so to speak, where there's this there, there are these structures that exist in the city that have specifically um, marginalized the Jewish people and have exiled them. And now that they have come back, there's this tension that exists within the church about whether or not these structures are something that you should um, be in collusion with, like maybe some Gentile Christians might argue with and try and win to your side, um, or are something that you should resist at all costs, which is something that I think the Jewish people would be far more likely to think, um, and w- what, it, what, what it means to kind of live in this political world that they're living in, in this really centralized place where there's so many different people coming in and out from different cultures, right? Um, hopefully, that kind of sets the stage for why Paul specifically wants to address this issue to this people. And uh, I do think that he does, interestingly, pick a side that um, uh, I think we should really be um, curious about when we think about it being opposed to colluding with and um, resisting. Um, instead of colluding with or um, uh, resisting, he says to be subject or to be um, submissive to um, these uh authorities. Um, and he makes, he draws a, um, interesting theological point here in these verses. Um, he says that God has established them. Um, and he says that, um, rebels against the authority are rebelling against what God has instituted. Now I want you to really think about this from a perspective of their time period. We're not talking about some like neutral secular leader here as far as like the emperor and the people in Rome go these like the emperor was known at this time period for intentionally like um uh claiming to be god uh, setting up his imp- his own cult so that people would worship him um it's called the imperial cult um this is not some neutral you know a uh, person that you know is like a neutral teacher in a classroom. That's like, well, you know, I'll allow you to have your religion, and well, I'll have my religion or whatever. Um, he definitely has his beliefs about himself, and and the emperor definitely was a type of person that uh, was, uh, I guess, I'll just say probably the least likely candidate for you to say that he has been appointed by God. We'll just say it that way. Um, he was. Uh, a lot of the time period from the 40s through the 60s, and even um, all of those emperors were very power hungry, and actually many of them went insane. I want you to think about Nero in this time period as well. Um, it, very, very heavy into sexual debauchery. Just you know, not not great people. And so it, it is a very controversial statement for him to make here to say that these people that are in power have been instituted. By God. And um, what he says here is very fascinating. He says the ruler holds no terror um, uh, for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. The idea being that, like, he does have a sense in which whatever that authority says is right and wrong. if you do something that's in disagreement with that person, then um, it's going to be considered uh, wrong in God's eyes as well, right because it's been established by God. Um, do you want to be fear uh, do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. There are uh, They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also a matter of conscience. So Paul has two reasons here. And I think this, this last line, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience, are the really two big, important points here. First, he's just very practical, and he's like, look, there's no point in resisting Rome because it's just going to end in punishment <laughs> like you know at the end of the day like you're just going to get um uh like killed essentially if you resist rome so like think of rome as a authority that god has instituted because there's no point in resisting this power structure because it at this point it just if you're doing something that they see is wrong, it's going to end in punishment for you. And I would rather you alive than dead. Right? Like that, that's, that's argument number one, right? Um, very practical point. Um, uh, but then he also, I, and I think most people don't have an issue with that one. I think that that one makes m- most sense to most people. I think it's the second one that more people have a problem with when they read Paul, um, which is that it's a matter of conscience, the second issue that he brings up and that like, there is something to be said for Paul about people that are in authority have been granted that authority by God. This is not something new to Paul, though. This is something that is existing throughout the entirety of the Old Testament um, in that uh, God will often use leaders in some a nation, state of any kind—Assyria, Babylon, um, Syria—any of these nations around, he will raise up a leader. Is usually the language that's used to then do something specifically to the people of Israel as a punishment for them not following God. We see a lot of times that God is very comfortable in the Old Testament associating Himself with these wicked kings that do very wicked and terrible things for the purposes of. Punishing his people. Um, and, uh, that's something that Habakkuk talks about, about quite a bit is like, why, why do you like, why do you use Babylon to punish Israel? Because Babylon is way worse than, um, than Israel. So it's not a new thing for Paul to say that, um, uh, resisting, um, that, that it is a matter of conscience, as far as resisting these kinds of authorities, because they've been instituted by God. That's something actually in the old Testament. Um, And it's something that actually, Paul actually sounds a lot like Jeremiah here in this section, because Jeremiah in the whole book of Jeremiah, that's Jeremiah's main point is don't try and resist um, uh, the people of Babylon. When they come to destroy Jerusalem, you have been a terrible people and you have been a people that God has decided not to be with anymore. And because of that, if you try and fight against Babylon, all that's going to happen is you're going to die. And so the smart thing to do is to submit yourself to Babylon and let Babylon take you away. Like that's just like, you will live in that case is what Jeremiah says. If you try and fight and keep Jerusalem standing, if you try and keep the temple standing and all this kind of stuff, that's not going to work. Like, my message to you is don't fight, just let Babylon come in and take over um, this whole area because God has abandoned you and you don't want to die. That's that's Jeremiah's point. And here, Paul is basically echoing Jeremiah. He is saying the exact same thing. And so I do think that for Paul, at least, he has thought about Jeremiah. He's thought about the fact that God would have considered it even more morally um, incorrect to um resist people in power that are doing things that he has um instituted because he is he has a reason for them. So the 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 problem then of course with all of that kind of as a historical setting, you know, we've got we've done our Old Testament research well now and we've kind of established that Paul's kind of in that same vein as Jeremiah, right? The problem is is that um how do we take this as like a moral truth, right? Like, is this something that we should then just apply to every certain circumstance? I don't think so necessarily because a big part of um, Paul in the book of Acts actually is not just someone that just allows Rome to have its way with him, um, but he uses Rome to his own advantage several times. Um, The best example of this is um, uh, Rome is trying to uh, whip him and kill him, and he mentions he's a Roman um, uh, citizen. And they're like, Oh, oh, we didn't realize that. Uh, we'll, we'll let you go, <laughs> you know. And he oftentimes will use the structures that are in place, not in collusion with them, but he will attempt to free himself. He's not just like sitting there as a rag doll, allowing them to just have their way with him. But there is a sense in which throughout all of Paul's journey with Rome, he has never. Going to call the people to uh, rebel against Rome. Um, the best example of this is in the book of uh, is in Acts, where um, uh, he actually inc- um, accidentally starts a riot in the um, city of Ephesus, and um, it's a riot that's started because uh, people start believing in his message and they start um, burning all of the uh, scrolls and all of the things that um, essentially are a part of the. Um, uh, religion of the time period, and a lot of the uh, religious leaders of the of the um, gods and goddesses of Rome get very offended, and so they start um, uh, crying out and forming this riot, and just all this kind of stuff happens, and it becomes this huge kind of tension in the city. And Paul wants to go, and he wants to convince everyone not to be in riot but to calm down but um the christians in ephesus convinced paul hey you don't want to go to where this riot is happening they are going to kill you if you go there so don't go there and he has to acquiesce to that and not go even though he wants to go um and it's a really interesting um situation because like uh a lot of like the the dynamics of that would be something in which you would have expected Paul maybe if he were a more revolutionary figure to have stoked up the Christians and tried to um, really incite that kind of rebellion. But again, he's not really trying to go about things in that way. He is very much focused on um, a very different kind of tactic when it comes to being a revolutionary figure, and that is to really deal specifically with the people's life stories and tell them specifically about what it means to be a Christian in a very specific kind of personal way, not in an um, overthrowing the government rebellion kind of way. And if it happens to um, branch out into that kind of territory where you become a the type of person that no longer starts to buy the things that were already integral to the economy of Ephesus, for instance, uh, half the reason the riot started is because it just upended their economy. Um, the idea is not to, not to then see this as a threat. Paul never wanted um, the Romans to see that as a threat. He wanted them to see that this was a different way that they could live. Um, and so it's a really, I think, an important point that Paul sees in this situation in which he's focused on um, living among Romans specifically, not being like a monk. We talked about that last week. He, did, I don't think he really thinks of Christianity as being the type of entity that should live outside of Rome or just leave Rome, right? Um, He wants them to live among the people. He didn't argue that like the Romans, uh, the uh, Jewish people, now that they're back in Rome, well, maybe you should just go form your own church outside of Rome and let the Gentile church exist inside of Rome, right? He didn't argue for that. He really wrote this whole book to try and get the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians to get along in the city. And the idea being that they would be around other non-Christian Gentiles and maybe even some Jewish people, Diasporan Jews in the area. So the idea is that he wants them around all of these non-Christians and he wants them to have this sense of um, submission to the authorities so that I think, People that are near them and close to them can understand that they are not rebel rousers. They're not these people that would be known as a people that try and stir up the government to get rid of them. They're not known as this kind of um, people that is violent or anything like that, right? Um, That they have instead a sense of um, themselves in which they are um, in every way um, different and not acting the way that others are acting. They're not attempting to gain the power of the government, but instead they're willing to be submissive to it, um, but not necessarily in collusion with it. And I think that's something that, uh, I why I keep using the word collusion is, this is something that I think a lot of f- f- Marx comes in. Um, and this this is why I said I'd talk about Marx a little bit, because Marx is a really interesting figure in the life of that we live in today, because one of Marx's big points, one of the biggest critiques he has against Christianity, is that Christianity in this current time has really colluded with the current structures of slavery, the current structures of um, capitalism, the current structures of a lot of the different um, ways that we live, and is very comfortable with those kinds of things. And Marx really sees Christianity as something in which um, submission texts like this one um, are used to keep poor people poor and keep rich people getting richer. Um, And for him, a lot of the accusations he labeled against Christianity was that Christianity really was a religion that was invented to keep people in a submissive posture while the people that were in power could just retain their power. Because if you invent a religion that um, keeps people in power without you having to police them with a police force, um, then you don't have to have a police force, right? Like, you know, religion can do all the work of the that the police would do, um, and it can keep people in these places where they actually want to be... Um, Submissive, and they actually want to be a people that don't want to rebel, and they want to be this kind of people that just let people walk all over them. Um, And that allows for the people that are empowered to continue to be in power without any checks and balances. And that was Marx's big criticism of Christianity. He saw Christianity as a religion that um, wanted uh, people to remain poor, that wanted people to remain. In these low positions of power, and therefore just allowed the rich to get richer, and allowed this um, the masters to continue being masters and the slaves to continue being slaves, um, and just continued to um, yeah have that happen without any kind of. Uh, a point of contention between the people of lower classes and the upper class. Marx very um, cynically believed that there was no such thing as abolishing um, an upper class and a lower class. He always believed that um, there would be a lower class and an upper class. And if, if the lower class ever did rise up above the upper class, they would just become the new upper class. And so for him, the idea was that... Um, Christianity was sort of invented as a way to keep the lower class down and keep things consistent, so that you never had a revolution every fifty to seventy-five years, basically, and you never had turmoil that existed for that for every seventy-five years or so. If you could use religion to keep the lower class in its place, then you wouldn't have um, the lower. Ca- lower class keep rebelling against the upper class all the time. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he was thinking of examples like the French revolution as a great example of that, where, um, the lower class beheaded the upper class with guillotines, right? Like there, there's examples that he was looking at that, um, for him, at least he saw how, um, a lot of that played out in those centuries. And, um, It was a point at which he brought all of those thoughts together in an argument for him that he really did believe that religion and Christianity in particular was encouraging people to be submissive so that they wouldn't turn into the people that are beheading the aristocrats. Um, That was his argument. And I think Christianity has really wrestled with that ever since he made that argument. I think Christianity has had a tension ever since he posited that about what, what these texts like this submission text mean for, um, Christianity. Um, how does this work? And I think, I think what I want to show here with the nuance here of this whole passage is that I know, I don't think we see at any point in this text, an argument for colluding with Rome, right? I don't think that, um, that you ever see Paul saying, well, you just need to, um, uh, like join up with Rome, since God has appointed them as an authority figure. We don't see Paul doing that in Acts, um, and I don't think that uh, I don't think that he seems to be making that argument. It's a very different argument to make that the authority has been um, put in power by God, versus to make the argument that. Um, the authority is Christianity or something like that. You know, like we can just join with the authority, um, which is something that Christianity does do in the 400s. Um, the emperor Constantine eventually does, um, offer Christianity a seat at his table and Christianity accepts it. Um, and so at that point I would say that Christianity colludes with the Roman empire. And I think you see a lot of the fallout of that in the crusades and the things that happen after that, um, with that colluding that happens there. But I don't necessarily think that that's what Paul was getting at with this statement here. I don't think he's saying to this people, Hey, um, the things that Rome are doing you need to um, say are good, right? Or approve of, or those kinds of things. What I think he's saying is that, um, very realistically, uh, the things that Rome are doing are things that you can't resist right now. They are things that are part of the structure that Rome has put in place. And if you resist them, you're going to die. Um, And instead of... Uh, this being about, um, a situation in which they have the freedom to express their own opinions and the freedom to vote the way they want to vote and all of these kinds of things, right? That's not the situation they're in. They're in a situation in which, um, they are very much limited in their responses that they can do. And as a result, um, for Paul, at least, this is this is something in which he sees it as an opportunity to teach them that God is always in control of any structure and power, and he's always using that structure for his own purposes in a way that Christians can trust in, in a sense. And that's a very different thing than assuming that um, it's all good, right? Um, and I think this is the tension that a lot of Christians feel, is that um, I think, Naturally, because we assume that when we hear the statement that a leader is um, instituted into power, we naturally want to make the next jump and assume, well, if the leader is instituted in power by God, that means that that leader and everything he does is good. And I don't think that that's necessarily the case. You wouldn't say that about the Old Testament stories when God appoints Pharaoh to do certain things. You know, When God hardens Pharaoh's heart, for instance, this is a great example of this. It's not that God sees what Pharaoh does to the people of Israel and punishing them and making them have to do harder labor and work as a result of God hardening Pharaoh's heart as a good thing. It's not a good thing, right? I mean, it's never called a good thing in scripture. It's just the fact that God wanted to do that so that he could show how powerful he really is to Pharaoh in the first place. And yeah, that did mean that the Israelites had to suffer a little bit more as a result of that. Um, And that's something that the book of Job brings up quite a bit is like, why would God kind of do it in this way? Um, And that's something that you have to really wrestle with, with the book of Job, but it's not necessarily ever called good, right? Like it's not considered a good thing. And I think that's something that like Christians really need to uh, give space for in their conversations with political entities and powers that even may be doing things that like they disagree with is to never see those things maybe as good, but to have the sense of, uh, God orchestrating things and that God is orchestrating things in a very particular way. One of the interesting things about this from like, you know, a conservative angle and a liberal angle is that <laughs> political Christians tend to see, government choices and opinions as divorced from God and God's sovereignty almost entirely. And they kind of see this political entity in the Americas as something in which um, it's completely divorced from God's will and completely divorced from what God wants. And it's just something that's like destroying our nation. So for a liberal, that might be you know Roe v. Wade being overturned for a conservative—that might be um, current issues that Biden's doing or some things like that. You know, like you—you you can name whichever ones you want to. And I think the interesting thing here is that neither side is willing to talk about God being behind all of those actions and God orchestrating those actions as potential for something of his own purpose, right? We don't know what that is, right? And we're not to call those actions good as a result of that, but it is important to remember that I think that's what Paul sees as the primary focus of people in power is that they're always put in power by God and they always have this sense of authority given to them by God and that they're put in power for a reason. Um, Whether we know that reason or not, um, that's something that God can maybe gift to us in our prayer and talks with him about it and our meditation, but we might not know that, right? Um, And it's an important thing, I think, that Paul wants this particular church to understand because I think that gives them a harmony with one another and with their state in a way that allows them to not necessarily collude with the state, but at the same time also understand that God has everything in control, right? And that ultimately, like, they can rest assured in God being the person that's in control of everything, right? And gives them that trust—it gives them that um, necessary calming trust factor that um, Christians need a lot— in circumstances where tensions are really high when it comes to political issues. Um, I think it's a really good thing to think about when we think about how Marx is critiquing Christianity quite a bit to think about it, not as submission and just allowing, um, a political structure to do what it wants to do, but instead to think of it as, um, something in which, uh, it's Christianity acknowledging that, um, the way that a certain political leader might do certain things um, is something that um, we trust in God in, not in man's power, right? And that's the thing I think Marx gets wrong is that Marx has no uh, Marx has no room for God working in the universe and God doing things. Um, for him, the only way that you survive is if you, take matters into your own hands. Um, And as a result, you have to rebel, right? Like you have to, you know, you have to uh, throw off all the shackles of religion and you have to, you know, actually take matters into your own hands because you're the only person that's going to stand up for you if you're an oppressed person. And I think it's a really important point to think about how um, that's not... um, That's not going to work if you are a religious person, you know, like if you're a religious person, you believe in something outside of yourself that loves you and takes care of you and orchestrates things for your own good. That's what we've been talking about in Deuteronomy. And when you believe and trust in someone like that, um, it's not just up to you to solve all of the oppressive forces that are against you, but it's um, up to someone very much more powerful than you that instituted those things in the first place. Um, And that might be challenging. You might have that struggle of why did he allow these kinds of things to happen? And that's where you have to go back to the book of Job and really wrestle with that. Um, But I think that it's, um, I think it's wrong to have that Marxist opinion in which it's just up to humans to fix that mess, right? I think it is a mess, and I don't think that Christianity should be saying it's not a mess. Um, and that might be an error that Christians have made in the past is to abuse these verses and to say that, oh, it's not really a mess. You should just submit to anything that it does. It's it's fine. It's good. It's okay. Um, I don't think that that's necessarily the right response. Um, but I think that there is a sense in which you have to kind of find that middle ground in between between colluding with the government and rebelling against the government, right, and find that middle ground in between those two words of collusion and rebellion, in which you can walk down that that road as I think Paul does here, in a way that's submitting to the authorities but not necessarily saying or believing that they're right, right. Um, there's a, there's a, there's a huge way even. Um, In uh, African-American discourse about this that I really like um, that I'm learning called signifying in which they take something um, that was used as a negative against their people in uh, American history and they turn it into something positive. They, they signify it and make it something different um, and actually meaningful for their people. Um, it's a really powerful point that I see a lot in like their literature um, in particular, in which they'll take um, uh, words that were used negatively towards them and they'll make them uh, words that now are meant positively when used by them To reference each other right Uh, and so a word that was used to be um, critical or um, negative um, against their people and meant to be racially um, uh, insensitive becomes a word that within their own people becomes a word of uh, uh, love and a word of um, camaraderie even right. And they do that a lot. Like the, the, that's all throughout their literature. Um, and I think that that's a small way that that's a really good example, I think of not necessarily agreeing, but also not just rebelling, you know, like it, it is a really good example of that, of that kind of, um, uh, kind of walking that middle road between those two. Um, and it's really hard to find ways to do that well, but I think that's where, um, I do think that's where um, the African-American community in particular um, has done that really well. And I think that that's something that you can really look to in their church and how they do things in their church. And that can actually um, be a really big point for discussions about how they handle those kinds of things. And that can teach white churches in particular how to handle those things more accurately, Um, at least according to what Paul is getting at here. So, again, not trying to make this all about politics, but, you know, it, it is very important, I think, to these kinds of discussions um, to really think about um, how this plays out, because I do think it's been abused quite a bit. And it's something that I think um, it's it deserves. It deserved its own podcast almost to talk about. I know we've talked about almost all of this way too long, but I I, I felt like that was worth you spending a lot of time on just because it tends to be something that we um, uh, spend too little time on when we preach it and it becomes too simple. Um, and it's something that I, I hope I've laid that out in a way, even if you disagree with some of the things I said, which again, like I said, I always say this in every episode, we're talking about Romans, there's probably going to be disagreements you have. But my, my hope with that was really to give us complex of a worldview as I possibly could on that text and really kind of lay out exactly what I think Paul is getting at and, uh, hopefully help you if you've ever struggled with that text, if you're coming from a background where that text has been used against you even. Um, and yeah, like, um, hopefully that offers you a way forward with that text where you don't necessarily have to see Paul as maybe a negative figure when it comes to that. Um, or someone that you're just having to wrestle with. I'm not saying that's a complete total answer to it, because there is still the hard truth of submission, you know, that comes along with that. Um, And submission is just a word that I feel like, you know, we could spend a whole podcast just talking about the word submission and what that looks like as a Christian and how, like going back to Marx again, I do think Marx really has muddied that word quite a bit to the point that like submission just kind of feels like a word that, feels like we're saying you should be like what mark Marx is accusing us of being which is just this people that never challenges structures that are trying to abuse other people that are in a lower class or um different race or all these different factors right um and if you're just someone that's submitting to all these structures then you're not someone that's actually like you are in collusion with them um and i think i think it's important to realize that um that kind of binary thought process is not something that I think, um, Paul sees or thinks about. I think he does think that there is a third way, um, um, to go about that. Um, and that there is a middle ground between collusion and, um, a rebellion in which, um, you can submit to the authorities in a way that, um, still necessarily keeps your opinions to yourself and keeps them as something in which you can express in certain moments and in certain ways to the people around you without necessarily having to, uh, give up those things. So yeah, all that to say, um, he then talks about um the commandments, and we'll touch on this very briefly. There's only a couple things I want to mention here in verses eight and following. Um first he says, Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. So he wants them to have a debt towards one another, and which is um that they should they all owe each other love. Um they owe each other a love for one another. Um, which, you know, like that is something that I think we gloss over quite a bit, but that's something that I think, you know, how many of you go into your churches and feel a sense of debt to the other people in the church that you owe them your love, you know, like that, that's a very, very different mindset to have. And it's something that I think you should think about if you've never thought about before. Um, But he's also saying like, let nothing else, don't be someone that just has like a bunch of things that you owe different people because that's going to create a lot of tensions, right? Um, Remember debts in this time period aren't you owe something to the bank or you owe something to the government, right? This is debt specifically focused on you borrowed money from your neighbor two months ago to pay for that ox or something like that. And you don't have the money to pay that neighbor back. And that neighbor wants that money because he's got to buy an ox in two months. You know, it's, it's those kinds of conversations that this people would be having more so than like the government's been asking you to pay your bills and you're going to go bankrupt or something, you know, like it's, it's less about those kinds of commercial debts and more about like that personal debt that you would do in this time period where you would borrow from someone very near and dear to you or very close to you, someone you knew very well. Um, and that, whole idea is that you don't want to be in debt to those people because it's just going to create a lot of tension, especially if you're going to the same church together. Um, that could cause some whole messes of things that happen in like Corinthians where you're suing each other. If you don't pay, you know, just a lot of crazy stuff that Paul just wants to avoid by saying, Hey, just, you know, don't, don't have any outstanding debts towards anyone. And ideally I do think that there's an implication here that like, the church, if you look at like how Acts functioned, they were selling their land and giving their money to the apostles to kind of f- help make sure that the whole community was taken care of. So there is an, you know, inclination here that this community would be the community that would be honest with the church leaders and be like, "Hey, I've got this debt to this person. I can't pay this debt. Can you help me out here?" And the church would consider that, right? You know, like I think this is one of the things that the churches lacks on hugely in our culture today so the church just doesn't want to give money to individuals as much as they used to. Even like I was listening to a podcast um, that was talking about 30 years ago, it was fairly normal for churches to pay for people within their congregation to go to seminary. And they would just give a full scholarship to anybody that wanted to go to seminary. Um, and nowadays you don't see that. and But you still see churches complaining about there being very few people that are pastors in our world today and people that want to be pastors in our world today. And you wonder why, because, you know, like even 30 years ago, there was a lot more of churches paying for their people to go to seminary and they didn't have to worry about a uh, $60,000 a year. I mean, a $60,000 in debt fee to the government. They could get all their money through a church that they were a part of, right? And like the church would support them in that. Um, but now that's just not happening. We're not we're we're raising money for missionaries and overseas, and I think that's great. Like i I think that that's something that we should continue to be doing. Um, but it's just something I've noticed about churches a lot, at least in the area that I'm around, is we're so mission minded that we're not very um, local locally minded. Um and really the only places that I've found that are locally minded are places that become post-Christian, like places that um become so um much so obvious that Christianity is suddenly a minority um where there are way more uh liquor stores than uh churches and like it you know it's obvious that like um, Christianity has kind of like had its day and now it's like only like a few places still have churches left. Those are the only places that I see churches kind of swinging back to focusing local instead of focusing overseas and on missionary fields and things of that nature. I'm not saying that that's wrong to like, you You really have to make some hard decisions when it comes down to that. Where, where's the church going to use your money? But like a lot of what I've noticed is that like, those are the only places I see currently today that are really trying to support people um, within their own community because that's a, there's a very small percentage of people that are going to those churches because they're in an area that's very post-Christian. Um, whereas in places like in the south where I am, there's churches everywhere. And so it, there's a sense of like um, less obligation, I guess I would say, to help the people around this area that are trying to go for those kinds of degrees and trying to do mission work here in Memphis or here in these areas, um, mainly because there's just so many churches and so many different Christians. And, you know, um, there's less urgency, I guess I'll say, to focus specifically on those things. So, yeah, it's it's just an interesting point that I guess I'll make to that whole concept of like um, how churches today operate, and it's more off of a sense of urgency and fear of losing a hold on a particular area than it is on like uh, even like whether the Spirit's leading us to help fund this person's seminary journey or something like that. Uh, I just wish those decisions were made less from a sense of uh, urgency and more of a sense of the Spirit leading in one direction or another. Again, uh, some of that is too, and just how individualistic we are, and I think people are far less likely to ask their church congregation for money. Um, It's just something that I think a lot of us feel a lot of shame for doing in the South in particular. So some of it is just on the people not um, not wanting to ask and not wanting to be a burden on the church. So I do think that there's a sense of that. There's a bit of that also carrying over, but um, it's it's kind of a two-way street in a sad way. Um, and it's something that I think um, in this time period, at least you didn't see a lot of. You saw people um, helping each other out in a huge way. Um, so then he mentions the commandments. This is part of um, a lot of people will use this as an example for um, why Paul um. Has not like done away with the Ten Commandments. Um, he's: You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not co- uh, covet. And whatever uh, other command there may be are summed up in this one command: Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does uh, no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. What I I don't necessarily read this as like, oh, these are the commands that still are instituted and all the rest, like the Sabbath laws are done away with. I think that this is actually just him picking out a lot of the uh, specific Ten Commandments that have to do with loving your neighbor and specifically focusing in on how this one command to love your neighbor as yourself, which is a command that Jesus gives, um, is very vital to how this church is to think about their relationship with each other and all the commands that are about loving another person should be thought of here um, and come to your mind as you're in relationship with one another. Cause that's, what's going to fix this church in Rome, right? Like if you've got tension between the Jewish people and the, and the Gentile people, this kind of um, central command, love your neighbor as yourself um, feeling like you owe everyone other than yourself. That love is going to really help to, bridge that tension that's existing in that church. So the last part of this uh, section in the whole chapter is really fascinating because there's been a lot of debate about this ending section. Some people believe that this um, portion of the chapter is Paul actually believing that um, Jesus is going to come back really soon, um, like in his lifetime. And I'll just read it all in kind of its context so we kind of get an understanding of what's going on here. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Uh, Let us uh, behave deeply. Decently, as in daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, close yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, and do not think about how to gratify the desires of your flesh. All right. So, the idea here is that he feels like there's an hour that has come for all of them, specifically to wake up from their slumber, Um, and he says in the next line that the salvation is getting near now than when they first believed and that the night is nearly over. The day is almost here, right? Um, This whole concept has caused a lot of debate in theological circles because like I said, some people do think that um, Paul believed that um, Jesus was going to come back in his lifetime and that they all should really get, their act together, um, because Jesus was going to come back during their lifetime. And so they, you know, wanted to not be caught like, um, with their pants down basically. And with all of the metaphors that that might, um, indicate. And instead that they would be a people that were doing what they should be doing and, um, behaving decently and not carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not having dissension and jealousy, rather being like Jesus Christ. Right. You know, and, and not, going that way. And this is kind of, um, him really instituting a sense of urgency for this particular community to be a people that is really known for their faith because Jesus is going to come back. Right. That, that is, that's belief number one. Some people believe that this is, um, not talking about, uh, Jesus's second coming, um, but is talking about, uh, the fact that, he believed that maybe their um, their deaths was coming pretty soon um, that he believed that in some way, shape or form uh, they would be um, uh, killed or martyred. And so um, this is more of his stance on that. The day is almost here and our salvation is almost near because they're going to perish pretty soon. Um, Some people have made that argument Um, and I personally, you know, that this is one that I've, I've wrestled with honestly, because I've never really, um, it does honestly feel more to me like the first one than the second one. Um, and you know, but I'm very uncomfortable saying that Paul was wrong, (laughs) you know, about something. Um, and I still need to do a lot more research on just kind of the, uh, what, what was really at the heart of this. Some people even believe that there was kind of like a, mid Jesus coming where Jesus came at 70 AD kind of, and that like 70 AD had like Jesus come in a weird way, but not like, not like the second coming. If that makes any sense, it was kind of like a weird moment where they'll pull verses from Mark 13 and Matthew chapter 24 to talk about how it feels like Jesus is going to come at 70, 70, AD specifically for that situation just for a moment some weird stuff you can get into with that. And so maybe, maybe he's talking about 70 AD here where, um, if you don't know what 70 AD is, this is the time where the Roman people decides to completely destroy, um, the temple in Jerusalem and, uh, basically conquers, Jerusalem and kind of levels it um, because of all the stuff that have been happening in Jerusalem up to that point. So some people think that that's what he's talking about here is that I think there's some problems with that view too. It doesn't really align with anything really, unfortunately historically. And so I think the the place that we're kind of left with for me at least is that he is instituting some kind of urgency Um. For what purpose, we still don't know, but we know that in some sense that this is something we can apply to our lives when we think about um, just how we're living today. And yeah, we don't want to be caught with our pants down, basically, right? Like We want to have uh, a sense of um, continued um, faithfulness to God through every day of our life and to have that sense of... um, maybe even mentally, even if it's not an actuality, mentally having this thought of it could be tomorrow that he comes, right? You know? And so that like, that gives us a sense of urgency to, um, uh, make sure that we're remaining faithful to him and being the kinds of people, um, that are faithful to him. So, uh, there's a lot more I could talk about there, but we've already made this episode go way longer than it should. So, um, i will end it there, but those are the, three things that he really focuses in on on this chapter. I hope you realize how integral this stuff is to the situation in Rome. That's the thing I've been trying to make sure gets across to y'all every time we do episodes on this, is really to focus in on just how Paul is using a lot of this stuff for um, the reunification of this specific church. And I do hope it challenges you a little bit to think about how might this get resolved today. I do think that in a huge way this would get resolved by the Jewish people going and starting their own church and the Gentiles going and starting their own church. And that is not what Paul is trying to do here. He's trying to keep these two groups together. And this is why we have the book of Romans. So that's something also to meditate on and just think about in your daily life. So thank you guys so much for um, listening to this episode. Like I said, I know that there was a lot of hard stuff to listen to in the first part of this, um, especially since it gets more into that kind of political spectrum. And I know some Sometimes a lot of us just kind of want to get away from that. Um, But I do think it's important sometimes when Paul kind of goes there to make sure that we do justice to those kinds of things. And like I said, I hope I left it open enough for y'all to meditate on it on your own without you feeling like I'm telling you to believe certain things. Um, My hope in all of these kinds of episodes is to let Paul speak more so than me. So thank you guys so much for tuning into this episode and I'll be back in your feed again next week.